You're listening to audio from Christ Covenant Buckhead. If you're interested in learning more, visit ChristCovenantBuckhead.org. Good morning. My name is Owen Strand, as advertised. Uh, it's such an honor to be here for my friend, an excellent pastor theologian, Jason Dees, and to, uh, to worship under the leadership of Matt Papa, one of the most gifted worship leaders of our generation. So this has already been a rich service for me, and I trust for you. I know that we are picking up in the Proverbs series on manhood before we dive into the text. Some of you are going to remember the film I'm going to talk about in just a minute because this is an iconic film. It's a film where a bunch of young men run on a beach all in white. I don't know if they color coordinated that beforehand, but they, they're all in white. And it's the movie Chariots of Fire. You know it because of the famous soundtrack, of course, the Chariots of Fire soundtrack. Dun, 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 dun. You know this? Yeah, come on. Here we go. Um, Chariots of Fire is a great film, won the Academy Award about almost 40 years ago, uh, but it's, it's kind of a timeless film. The movie tells the story of a guy named Eric Little. Eric Little became an Olympic gold athlete. Uh, he, he medaled in the Olympic Games famously. Uh, what we don't necessarily know about Eric Little, this uh, subject of the film Chariots of Fire, is that his life did not peak with the Olympic Games. I'm in Atlanta, site of the uh, Olympic Games many years ago, so you know it, Olympic culture here in this city. If you medal in the Olympic Games, you basically have the rest of your life laid out for you. Uh, you can get endorsement deals, you can get a sweet job, all sorts of things that people are going to want and understandably desire in this life. But Eric Little medaled, a gold medalist, in the Olympic Games and then made a very strange decision. He was offered a position at Oxford University, if you're in the academic world as I am, you'll know that Oxford and Cambridge are the very top. Uh, they've been around for almost a thousand years and so you cannot match the grandeur of Oxbridge as they are sometimes called together. He was offered lucrative positions with different businesses where he would be a, basically a face and, and draw a massive salary. He could have traveled all over the world and spoken and done basically whatever he wanted to do. Eric Little was a gifted man in numerous fronts. He wasn't just fast and, and felt God's pleasure when he ran. He was a very gifted man. But here's the deal that Chariots of Fire does not really talk about. The second half of this Olympic gold medalist's life. There's a quick uh, little word on the screen at the very end of the film about this part, but it's not at all part of the story. Eric Little really began to truly live after uh, his gold medal. You see, he packed it all up, he rejected all the offers on the table, and he decided to become a missionary in China. He went to China at a time when it was a, a desperate season in China's life, World War II was breaking out and eventually the Japanese war machine would push into China and very much change Little's missionary experience. Why, why leave Oxford on the table? Why leave a massive salary on the table? Why not pursue fame? I mean, that's really the unholy trinity of our world, right? Money, fame, power. That's what so many people want. That's what so many people chase every minute of their lives until their life is over. He had all three. He had them in the bag. 
and he rejected them all. Why? Because of manly courage. Because he saw that there were people all around the world who needed to hear about Jesus, and he thought that that was what God was calling him to do, and so he left it all behind. This morning, we're going to talk about this theme of manly courage in Proverbs 28.1. You can turn there with me now, if you will. It's in the Old Testament, right about the middle of the Bible. Proverbs 28, verse 1, just one verse this morning. We are reading today from Hezekiah's collection of Solomon's Proverbs. Solomon being one of the most renowned kings in the Old Testament in the nation of Israel. Proverbs 25 through 29, those four or five chapters, are collections of the sayings of Solomon, who was renowned for his wisdom, who famously prayed for wisdom, and God gave it to him. And the book of Proverbs is part of that harvest of wisdom that God gave to the man, the king, Solomon. Before we read the verse, the the technique that we're going to be seeing in Proverbs 28, verse 1, is called antithetical parallelism by literary scholars. There's your... uh, Mouthful for the morning, that's for free. Uh, When you use an antithetical parallel, you draw out two people who are on parallel tracks and you contrast uh, where those tracks end up going. Solomon frequently does this in his Proverbs. He frequently contrasts, that is, the wicked and the righteous. You see this all throughout uh, chapters 28 and 29. So this is a frequent device used by Solomon ultimately to do two things, to show how lost we are outside of following God and to show just how good, how blessed we are when we follow the Lord. Proverbs 28, 1, the word of the Lord. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your holy word this morning, I pray that you would bless us. I pray that you would open our eyes to the contrasting fates of the wicked and the godly. Lord, we do not stand here as those who have any sufficiency in ourselves for these things, but we pray that your Holy Spirit would move powerfully in our hearts and convict us and encourage us and strengthen us according to the word of God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This morning we're gonna see three insights from just this one verse, three insights. The first that we're going to see from the text, we live in terror as unbelievers. We live in terror as unbelievers. This passage does not only tell us about our main theme this morning, which is going to be courage, and don't worry, as promised, that's coming. This passage, though, also tells us about the experience of lostness, what it means to be lost without God in this world. The wicked flee, Solomon says, when no one pursues. Looking at this verse from the perspective of Christian faith with a completed canon, with the New Testament, before we are born again, before God regenerates us, we would say, in other words, just gives us spiritual life. That's a fancy word that means gives us spiritual life, the new birth, being born again. Before that strikes, we live in terror. I don't mean that in every moment we bounce off the walls, wild-eyed, unable to function. Many people who are not born-again believers, in point of fact, live 
pretty normal lives. Some of them even have a fair bit of happiness in their life. But I do know that the word of God is true. And so we know that the wicked flee when no one pursues. And so we can say that our terror is often more low grade than what I just described. What do I mean? I mean that we all know deep in our hearts that God is real. We all, according to Romans 1, have a conscience, Romans 1 and 2, and we know that we do not honor God as we should. This is before even we are saved. This is before even a Christian comes up to us at work and asks if we want to join a lunchtime Bible study or whatever it is that weirdo Christians do in order to get you to become a Christian. Uh, We know, even prior to those moments, even prior to hearing preach sermons, that there's right and wrong. I have three children, four, seven, and ten. Girl, boy, girl. At no point did my wife or I take them aside and say, now listen, here is how you sin, okay? We want you to not just sin, but to be really good at it, okay? To be clever and crafty and deceitful. Nobody, nobody trained the strand children back in Kansas City where I teach systematic theology. No one trained the strand children or your children in the rudiments of deception and sin, okay? There's not usually a course for that. What does that tell us? Well, kids naturally do sin. They know how to do wrong. They know how to disobey their parents. Why? Because it comes from within. We're lost because of Adam's fall, historical fall, a real fall in Genesis 3. And so we naturally go astray. doesn't mean we always sin as much as we possibly could. It does mean our hearts are prone to wander. That's what it means. Now, along with that sin nature is a conscience, what we call a conscience. Conscience is the ability, the inborn, innate ability to know at a basic level right from wrong. This is what we all have. We all have a conscience. Even if we don't have Christian witness around us, gospel testimony around us, we know, we know that we don't honor God as we should in some form. We also understand the matter of judgment in some way as unbelievers. We're aware as human beings, per this conscience that I've just been talking about, we're aware that we deserve some kind of recompense for our wrongs. We are not living the way we should, and in some form, we know that there is going to be a payment for that unrighteousness. We recognize further that death is a terrible reality that hangs over every human head, like a sword, a flaming sword above us. Death is coming. All the centuries, millennia of human history, all the technological innovations, all the expertise, all the different philosophies that have populated the world, no one has solved death. No one has even really come close We live a little bit longer today. You have a longer lifespan in general, and books like Homo Deus talk about living forever, uh, transcending the limits of our bodies through technology. So there's a lot of discussion in those settings. That'd be an interesting way, by the way, to bridge evangelism with people today, to get the book Homo Deus and talk about it uh, according to a Christian worldview because it's stirred up a lot of discussion in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. Some of you may have read it. Even if... The technologists devote themselves to the problem of death, and it is a real problem for us all. Make no mistake, death cannot be solved. Only God can undo death. Only God can put death to death. Bring all these elements together, my dear friends, 
and you have a potent concoction of fear and shame for every unbeliever, for all of us in our natural state. One commentator uh, writing about this verse, Proverbs 28.1 says this, the wicked live in constant anxiety. On some level, they're aware of their guilt and know that retribution must come, but they do not know its time or form. That is exactly right. There's this vague sense that I am not living as I should and that I am going in some form to pay for this. How many people around you live in constant anxiety? Just anxiety of all kinds. Uh, they, They try to control it. They try to push it away. You can't. If, you're, if, you're, if you do not know Christ, if you do not have the peace of God, it dominates your life. There are four major reactions to this, this sense of terror. The wicked flee when no one pursues. That's a life of terror that Solomon is describing. There are four major reactions to this reality that hangs over your head. First, you can pretend that fear and shame and judgment do not exist. You can just sort of wipe them away. You can adopt a philosophy that tells you that these concepts are wrong. And so lots of people seek intellectual avenues out of this conviction, the conviction of the conscience that every person has. Second, you can so pursue pleasure that you effectively drown out your fleeing state. The wicked flee when no one pursues your terror. You can try to effectively just wash it away with pleasure. People all around us in our very nice cosmopolitan society choose this option on a regular basis. Third, you can acquiesce to the darkness and you can live a nihilistic life of, dis- of destruction. You can go Nietzsche's way if you want and, uh, and just basically in a kind of Bane way from the Batman film recently, embrace the darkness as I think he says at one point. So that is a real thing that people do. Plunge into the darkness, wrap your arms around it. Almost make it a good thing when it is not, to be sure, a good thing. Fourth, last option, we can face our terror. We can face it. We can look it right in the eye, eyeball to eyeball, and square with it. We can confess our sin to God and repent and trust in Jesus, the one God has sent to overcome terror, overcome anxiety, overcome shame. It's washed away by Christ. And this leads us to our second insight this morning. We act in courage as believers. Second insight here from the text. We act in courage as believers. The righteous we read here from Solomon are bold or confident, you could translate it that way, confident or bold as a lion. Quite a striking image. Lions. Let's talk lions for a minute. Uh, I, I frequently get asked animal questions at dinner these days especially from the seven-year-old aforementioned boy. Um, And all sorts of, speaking of antithetical contrasts and all sorts of weird pairings that neither my wife, Bethany, nor I have ever thought about, Uh, especially at 5.30 when we're tired after a long day and we're just trying to get the kids to eat their bites of chicken. You get asked questions like, if a whale fought a bear, who would win? (laughs) True story. Uh, so as, as a father or a mother, you have to get ready when you go to that dinner table because you may well get asked questions about the animal kingdom that you have never conceived of, that you've never thought of, but there will be answers demanded of you on the spot. 
can a, who, who's faster, a cheetah or a velociraptor? Um, I mean, th these are real questions that I have been asked. And so uh, lions, though, frequently figure in because lions rule the animal kingdom. Uh, many of you have watched some sort of documentary uh, or something, and so you know just how strong lions are. They typically hunt at dawn. Uh, they have great color for blending into the natural setting of the plains and different parts of the world. Did you know this about lions? In, in researching for this sermon, I, I got to do a deep dive on the destructive power of lions, which frankly, the seven-year-old boy lives in me too. I'm 37, so it was pretty cool. I'm not going to lie to you. And uh, the lion frequently, uh, according to headlines and news stories, will kill a rival with a single blow of its paw. When you think of lions, I bet you instinctively think of the jaws. What did, what did you, well, okay, we won't do it out loud, but you might have thought of the jaws of a lion, right? Extremely strong, yes? It's actually the paws that do a lot of damage, and you can find one link after another online. Don't do it now, do it after the sermon. Uh, you can find one link after another about lions killing bears, even, with one strike. Frequently they strike, when they're in a battle with a bear, they strike the bear on the back and break the back with one, one hit, one blow. Okay, now you're all completely freaked out by this image. <laughs> Good place for the sermon here. Uh, the righteous are bold as a lion. The lion need not fear anything. That's the point. Even if a bear comes against the lion, the lion's fine. I mean, the lion's calculating the odds. The lion's thinking about the angle of attack and these sorts of things. But the lion does not fear any animal, basically, in the jungle. That is the identity of the Christian in the spiritual world, in the spiritual kingdom. The righteous are bold as a lion. The righteous are not those who make themselves appear good. Let's be clear about this term that Solomon uses, the righteous. The righteous are not those who uh, successfully live a clean life and speak religion fluently and promote all the right causes on social media. The righteous are those who are justified by faith and faith alone with no admixture of works. If we are a Christian, we have placed our faith all of it, in Christ. And this means that fear, terror, shame, and guilt are old enemies, are old enemies known to everyone in this room. All those enemies are put to death. The righteous are bold as a lion because they fear no one, because in faith they have become united to Jesus Christ himself. Do you realize how incredible the truth is that I am saying? Not the incredible nature of the words I'm using, the incredible nature of the truth from the Bible. The fact that we are free from these enemies. The world encourages us to manage our problems. As I have been saying, take a pill if you have anxiety. Eat food if you feel bad. Sleep around if you feel lonely. Make money if you feel unvalued. Make excuses if you have a bad temper. Drink yourself to sleep and party if you feel shame. You know these outlets. I do too. Christianity gives us something so much better than any of that. Christianity doesn't call us to manage our problems. It calls us to mortify our sins. That's an old-fashioned theological term that you should know. Mortify, put to death. The famous uh, Puritan theologian John Owen wrote a book about the mortification of sin that, yes, has some kind of ancient language but is really valuable 
for facing down your chief foe and mine, sin. And the good news is you're not just managing that condition. You are mortifying the flesh, putting it to death by the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit in you. When you place your faith in Christ, my dear friends, you no longer have a sword hanging over your head. You have become righteous through the righteousness of Christ, not through you, through Christ. It's all counted and reckoned to your account, though you and I are not righteous. Now we are free, the worst possible thing in the cosmos that can be imagined cannot happen to you and me. We cannot go to hell eternally for our sins, which is what we all deserve, infinite, eternal damnation for sin. We all deserve it in full. And now it cannot happen if you trust Christ by faith. God's judgment is spent in Christ. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus for you. The death sentence we deserve for our sin is canceled. Derek Kidner, the famous exegete, says it well. The straightforward man, like the lion, has no need to look over his shoulder What is at his heels is not his past, but his rear guard, God's goodness and mercy. What Kidner is saying is that there's not a lion, actually, or a a predator on your heels as a believer. God is with you. God is beside you. God is not stalking you to strike you down. Through faith, God waits to bless you and walk you through the wild and take you all the way over to the new Canaan. That is what God is in the business of doing for every believer in here. We are not saying that in coming to faith, our our trials and our challenges and our struggles get zapped away and no longer exist. Or if you become a believer, you live this unblinkingly victorious life. That's not what I mean. That's not what Jason preaches. It is the case, however, it is the case that hell is powerless over you This is true of you, Christian. I mean you. I'm not not up here to say theoretical truths about theology. I mean you. If you are in Christ, hell is powerless over you. Satan has lost. Death cannot hold you. And sin cannot defeat you. There is no sin that can defeat you. And so this all means, my friends, all this stacking up of glorious truths from Scripture means that you and I are freed to be bold to be confident in God, and to be courageous. We sometimes hear, quick quick note here, we sometimes hear that if we get too much theology, it's going to be a problem for us. Like, um, you know, if you get too much truth in that brain, your brain or mind is just going to explode. It's going to be crazy if you get too much truth in there. And, you know, there can be an approach to the Christian faith that is overly theoretical. Let that be clearly said. But the, the reality is we need truth. The reality is knowing the truth about salvation, about the doctrine of salvation, so-called. Whether or not you ever get a degree in it is actually that which will absolutely transform and renew your life. These truths that we've been talking about, which are simply uh, unpacking this, uh, this idea, this understanding of righteousness from all the scripture, these truths totally change your life. Not knowing these truths leaves you in your sin. Knowing these truths leaves you utterly transformed bold, confident, and courageous. Here we see our third textual insight this morning, third of three. 
Men have the call to lead in boldness. Men have the call to lead in courage. You see this all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, David and his mighty men go to war against Israel's enemies. They are bold as a lion. David, the warrior king, uh, in, in the Old Testament historical sections, shows us just how powerful godly courage is. Through David, through one man, one warrior, one, by the way, small warrior. You can tell why I chose this illustration for the, uh, for the sermon. He's short. Nobody's looking to David. This is a common biblical theme. Nobody is looking to David to be the hero and the deliverer of the people of God. David, in fact, is left out of those who could even be a candidate to go to war against the Philistines and against Goliath. And yet David is the one who God has appointed. David is the one who goes out to battle against a nine-foot-tall uh, behemoth. And David is the one who kills him. Manly courage routes the Philistines and saves the nation. It's manly courage. It's old-fashioned, raw boldness from a young man who shouldn't even be there. Sometimes you feel that as a believer, don't you? I shouldn't even be in this. What? We, need, we need to call, like, in, I don't know, the spirit of Billy Graham here to do this evangelistic encounter, this lunchtime Bible study, meet with this person. They're really smart. I'm not, as a Christian, equipped for this. I am not ready for this. God frequently chooses those who feel that way to do his work and build his kingdom. It's remarkable, the kindness of God, how he uses people like David that nobody is looking toward to get his work done. All that is needed, the Bible teaches us from uh, David's example and others, all that is needed in the face of evil is courage and perseverance. The will to fight. The will to fight, not against flesh and blood per se, uh, in a spiritual sense, although there is some element of that in our world, to be, to be sure. But for Christians, we need the will to fight against the devil, <laughs> against our foe, against the serpent who would undo us, against principalities and powers, against spiritual forces that seek the destruction of humanity. When David's kingship is over, what does David do? In 1 Kings 2.2, David is dying. The, uh, the days of the warrior king have gone by and his eyes are dim and he is just about to die. And he calls Solomon to himself. Solomon who is telling us the righteous are bold as a lion. What does David say to Solomon? Be strong and show yourself a man. He says it a couple times so that Solomon will not miss it. He really wants Solomon to hear two things, to be strong and to show himself, prove himself a man. David does not mean what Seinfeld once called feats of strength. Uh, he doesn't mean that Solomon should go out and try to single-handedly chop down a tree with his bare hands and then pick the tree up and you know, display sort of macho strength. To be sure, uh, various figures in the Old Testament do show physical strength and need to show physical strength, and men today actually need to show physical strength as well in many instances and should be prepared for that. But the major way that Solomon is called to be strong by David, if you look at the context of 1 Kings 2, is to be strong in the Lord, to be strong in righteousness, to be strong in holiness. 
And that no man is barred from. You cannot choose your height. You cannot choose how wide your shoulders are. You cannot choose how high you jump. But as a man, you can pursue the Lord. You can become strong, whatever your background is, in Christ. Nothing is holding you back from becoming strong in God. Nothing is holding you back from showing yourself a man. In other words, walking into the world confident in God in order to do damage to the kingdom of Satan. Every man can do that. Every man of every temperament and personality, every Christian, in fact, has this strength and this ability. But we are focusing this morning in this third point on the biblical testimony about manly courage and manly strength, a clear biblical theme. The same spirit operates in the New Testament church. You think of a text like 1 Corinthians 16, 13. The apostle Paul says this to the whole church, man and woman alike. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, Uh, that's from the Greek, it's act like men, it's not be courageous, though it is in some modern translations, unfortunately. Act like men, be strong. So in the Apostle Paul's mind, men have a particular responsibility to be courageous. Courage is so important in the apostolic mind that it is the very emblem of, of manliness. Friends, there is such a thing as manhood. There is such a thing as womanhood. We're going to talk more about this tonight. I'm going to trace for you why people today have totally lost confidence in the categories known to all humanity over six millennia or whatever, however long this earth has been spinning, of manhood and womanhood. Our society is the first, really, to do away with the concepts of manhood and womanhood. We are the first. This society, now, in 2018, what a moment to be alive, right? This is the first to revise humanity such that there, there are not two sexes. There is a blurry continuum of the sexes. I'm going to withhold lots of comments at this point and save them for tonight so you get your money's worth or at least a little bit of it in the Covenant Institute lecture. But suffice it to say that our society and our culture has lost sight of manhood and womanhood. I don't even mean biblical manhood and womanhood. I don't mean Christ-shaped manhood and womanhood. I mean the very concepts themselves. I mean restroom signs for men and women. That idea is totally in question today, 2018. So not only do people struggle in our time to be a courageous Christian man, we all do, every man does, me included. No, 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 no. We struggle to even know what a man is. Go to Barnes & Noble. Go to the local coffee shop. Find a young guy. Go to, the, go to Tech. Go to Georgia Tech. Walk around on the campus. Ask, ask the young men you see, what's a man? What is a man? Some of them will have had some training in that, okay? Especially, I'm, I'm in the South, but man, you go to where I'm from, you go to Maine, you go to New England, but even here in Atlanta as well. <laughs> this, this is everywhere. This is Missouri, where I live you're going to have plenty of young men who cannot answer that question. You're going to have plenty of young women who cannot answer the corresponding question. They may, I'm not meaning everybody out there is rejecting their body. Most people, in point of fact, are not. I am saying, though, most people have no conception, have no idea how exactly to define these realities. The Bible defines these realities. We will never 
give up on the Bible. We will never let the testimonies go. This is life to us. This is the word of God for us. Act like men. That's what Paul tells an entire church. What does he mean? He means be courageous. The Corinthian church is a fantastic parallel for us. Ancient Corinth was a wild place. It was a place of depravity. It was a place where you went to de-Christianize yourself. There was a term invented in the Greek world, not by Christians, Corinthianize. It meant essentially to become scandalous, decadent, and depraved, to lose yourself in all sorts of sexual rites and temple uh, practices and these sorts of things. It was a dark place. It was a place where uh, the, the gender lines were blurred. It was a place where homosexuality was practiced in great number. It was a place where adultery is going to be seen as a good thing. There's all sorts of sins that became very popular in ancient Corinth, just like in America in 2018. And it was to this people, this humble, embattled Corinthian church that the Apostle Paul said, act like men. He meant be courageous, be a bold Christian witness here in Corinth. You might feel, Corinthians, like you want to be zapped out, like in Star Trek, you know, beamed out of Corinth and, and placed somewhere nice, neat, and tame. But God has you here for a reason. God has placed you in Corinth. So, friends, Christ's covenant, God has placed you in Atlanta. And even me, back in Kansas City, uh, where things have very much changed in the heartland as well. Uh, my neighborhood has definite instances of these changes. Multiple uh, couples uh, who are raising their children in a homosexual home in the heartland, in a red state so-called. You can feel to yourself, if you're not careful, like, I, I, what's going on? What has happened to this country? What, you know, this society has ultimately changed. God has put us here for this. This is where we're supposed to be a witness. These are the people to whom we're, we're called to witness. There's not some other call for Christians. We're not called to head for the hills. We're called to be here now. This is our mission field. This is your mission field. This is it. Buckle up. Act like men. If men are not being courageous in the apostle's mind, they are not imaging Christ. You, you think of the, the call given to men and to husbands by Paul in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, died on the cross for his bride. Jesus gives us the example of courageous manhood. There is no more brave act in human history than the death of Christ. Jesus did not die on the cross as a victim. Poor Jesus. Jesus laid his own life down by his own will, and John frames Jesus' death as an act of war. The reason the Son of God appeared, John says, was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8. Does that sound like ramped up and kind of, whoa, whoa, tone it down a little, uh, preacher? That's John. <laughs> That's 1 John 3, 8. That's spirit-inspired scripture. Jesus came to destroy the devil. He came as a lion. Jesus went to the cross to rescue his covenant people from Satan by absorbing the Father's wrath for all who repent of their sin and trust in his name, Jesus gave himself up as a sacrificial offering. 
This took heroic fortitude. It was an awful thing, the crucifixion. But Jesus loved his church and desired his father's glory. It was glory on his mind as he went to the cross. So Jesus died as a warrior savior to destroy Satan's power over the church, to destroy Satan's power over you. The work of Christ, the greater David, is what the entire Bible points to. The cross reveals in IMAX level display, cosmic display, the courage of the God man. The cross of Christ shows men who we are called to be and it shows us what the boldness of the righteous can do. Men, you should look to Jesus, whether single or married, you should look to Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, whether or not God calls you to marriage, to see the example of Christ, to see the identity of Christ, to see yourself as one who protects women, ultimately in a spiritual sense. And husbands, you should certainly see yourself in the role of Christ, a role that causes us to boggle and every man fails in, me included, but that is the role slotted for you and me to fill, the role of Christ in a marriage, to, to be the one who gives ourselves up for our wife in love, a challenging call for us all, but the call of God nonetheless. You see this same pioneering spirit in the apostles, the apostles that Jesus trains. Who does Jesus train? He trains 12 men. I talked about this earlier this morning with the group leaders. Jesus does not start uh, a 6,000-person gathering in a Roman or Jerusalem amphitheater or something like this because the only way to impact the world is through the biggest numbers possible. When Jesus wants to change the world and infiltrate the kingdom of darkness, what does he do? He starts a group of 12 people and trains them. And those 12 apostles have that pioneering, act-like-men spirit empowered by the Holy Spirit, as the book of Acts makes very clear, the apostles launch out into a pagan Roman world and a knives-drawn Jewish context, both spheres of ministry that we see in the book of Acts, and they preach the gospel and they seek by God's grace to build the church. Do you need to be stirred up afresh in, in your call to courage as a Christian, man or woman alike, read the book of Acts. Read it with that in mind. And men, look at what these 12 men are doing, these 12 apostles, they are leading out in mission. You see the same thing in Paul's letters to his young charge, Timothy. When Paul raises up Timothy, he calls him to be courageous. See uh, 2 Timothy 1 verse seven. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. In other words, the pastor, the church leader, and all who would see the pastor and church leader as the example in scripture, that figure must be courageous. Men, you're supposed to, whether or not you become an elder in this church, you're supposed to be reading Paul's words to Timothy and Titus about elders and you should aspire to that character. You should look at the character traits. You should read them in your devotions. And you should pray that God, by his grace, would bring those traits to full flowering in you. It doesn't matter 
if you get an MDiv, it doesn't matter if you enter the pastorate, that's not the point. The point is to see godly men raised up in the church and you should not wait for someone to tap you on the shoulder and offer you two-year training in manhood. You should go to the Bible and you should pray and you should read those traits and you should seek by God's grace to kill sin and by the Spirit's power to become a man of God in full form. You will never be perfect, but you can seriously grow. That is a very different word than this culture is giving you. This culture encourages you and me men to infantilize ourselves, to stay boys forever, to not grow up, to lose ourselves in lesser pursuits, and the Scripture has a very different call. The Scripture calls us to seek to be mature, godly men in, in, a, in a fallen world. So this is what men look like. They look fearless. They are bold as a lion. They're confident in God, and they're willing to risk everything they have for God's glory and the good of others. Whatever their specific title, whatever their specific role to play in the kingdom, this is true of all men. Okay, we need to turn towards application. Just a few quick applications for you this morning. Just four in number, and we are wrapped up. First, first thing I want you to see in applying this text and taking this text into your life, men should pray and seek to be courageous in all of life. We should pray and seek to be courageous in all of life. We should, we should seek to be tough. We should try to breed toughness in our boys. Uh, traditional manhood is not itself Christic, Christ-shaped manhood, but there are certainly elements of biblical manhood in traditional manhood. I will trust that you hear me clearly on that. If you want to dialogue about that tonight, you can. When you are reading World War II history and you are seeing the tremendous price that was paid by our grandfathers in order to keep Western civilization free and to end Nazi tyranny and close concentration camps where millions of people were incinerated, you are seeing something true in manhood. Men have to be tough. Men have to be strong. Men have to fight evil wherever they find it. You have to go beyond, though, mere earthly struggles. We have to resolve Pray to be courageous in fighting Satan by the power of the Spirit in us. Men, Satan wants every last one of you to lose yourself in pornography and lesser pursuits. He's taking down a whole generation of men right now. Look at the stats. Look, look at what's happening to men today. It's like a, it's like a tsunami for, in which men are crashing and burning. We have to resolve to fight Satan. We have a foe who wants to destroy us. Single men, married men. God wants your marriage. God wants to destroy, oh my stories. Satan wants to destroy your marriage. God wants to destroy the one who wants to destroy your marriage. Did I recover that sufficiently? So all this means that we pray, we ask God to change us, and we equip ourselves however we can, mentally, physically, emotionally, intellectually, to be courageous and to be strong. Your home, being courageous in your home. Men, you're called to be a leader, a spiritual leader in your home. You're called to open the word of God and pray with your family. That doesn't look very fancy for most men. It does look like reading the Bible with your family, doing a little devotional 
a couple times a week maybe, something like this. The Bible doesn't exactly spell this out, but you're the head of your wife. You're the head of your home. How are you going to make this practical? Your marriage, you've got to defend and speak up for your wife. You've got to see her spiritual good as that which is on your mind. You can dare to have a Christian marriage. You can be courageous in this when people all around you compromise. As a single man, courageous means treating women and children well, putting them before yourself, risking your comfort and your safety to help others, your church. You can be a part of leading out and making disciples and serving the church. You don't have to have a fancy title, as I have said, to serve your church. Be courageous. Don't be on your heels. Go up to your elders and your pastors and ask them how you can strengthen the church, how you can use whatever gifts the Lord has given you to bless this body. Your workplace, lastly, you can speak the truth in love. You can put others before yourself and you can oppose evil wherever it presents itself as a Christian man. This is getting tougher. Some of us are going to bleed in days ahead at the corporate level because we can't give in to a lobby that denies biblical truth. We, we can't give prey to uh, progressive forces that are urging us and, and commanding us to revise our understanding of the human person and human sexuality. There will be a cost for some to pay uh, increasingly, I think, in this culture, but we need to be ready for it, and we need to know that there is tremendous power when even just one person stands up. There's tremendous power. When David went out to fight Goliath, we're still talking about David millennia later. What if God, what if God is calling you to be faithful as long as you can be faithful and not have your career blow up in a secular workplace, in the secular academy, by the way, but what if God has actually appointed you to be a figure, to be a witness in your workplace who is going to be the one who says, no, I cannot embrace this. I cannot say this is good. Our society is filled with those who are capitulating. Someone has to stand up. Someone has to act like a man, not in a shock jock radio way, in a, in a loving way, in, in a way that speaks the truth in love, in a way that opposes evil because you love unbelievers who are only in the same state you and I once were in. Second application, women of God have the joyful opportunity to encourage men to be courageous. Women have a role to play here, a very strong role to play, I might add. A woman in, in Genesis 2, the first woman, Eve, is, is the helper, is heir of the man. And we can understand that there's no conflict there. The woman is called to build her husband up and partner with him in the task of taking dominion. And the woman is not weak or inferior to the man in Genesis 2. The woman actually brings things to the table the man does not have. But nonetheless, the man is the one who names the woman. So we have an order, according to the scripture, that we cannot compromise. Women today are not encouraged, really, in a cultural sense to, to nurture men, to, to strengthen men as they can. But I think that women of God in the church, the true culture, the body of Christ, should seek wherever possible to build men up, encourage them to be courageous. Mothers training their sons, even at home, while dad is providing. That's a real thing, to train your boy to be courageous in God. Third, third application. The evangelism of the lost and discipleship depends upon godly men. God has staked the future of his church on godly men. If we do not raise up elders to lead the church, we do not have a church 
So we have to know that men are called to lead out in these great works. It does not mean that men and women do not partner together. They surely do. Uh, This is a Southern Baptist church. We think of a figure like Lottie Moon, who's a courageous woman missionary, a pioneering missionary. Think of a woman like Elizabeth Elliot, who was following her husband as he led the family into missions. Then Jim Elliot, this famous Christian missionary, is killed. And what does Elizabeth Elliot, a godly woman, do? She goes back to the very people, tribe, that killed her husband, and she evangelizes them, and many of them become Christians. Wow, what an example of courage that is. But in all of that, men were leading out, and men have to lead out afresh in our day. Fourth, and finally for us this morning, every Christian here needs to remember, guy and girl alike, your shame and death is defeated. Your shame and death is defeated, and you are free to live life for God's glory. We talked about this earlier in the sermon. Here's, here's something you could say to re-situate yourself when you lose perspective, as we all do. All I deserve is divine wrath. Everything else is a gift. Let me repeat that. All I deserve is divine wrath. Everything else is a gift. You and I are sinners. All we deserve is God's punishment for our sin, and yet... God has allowed us to live and exist in this world, and yet God has not only done that, he has saved us into a living hope such that we will live with God for all eternity in the new heavens and new earth. We will walk with the one who is the lion of Judah, Revelation 5. Revelation 5, verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me at the end of all things, do not weep, look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, there's David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. We don't deserve to be able to follow Jesus, but Jesus has made a way for us. We are not only as bold, brothers and sisters, as a lion on the African plain, we are as bold and confident as the Lion of Judah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the things we have put on the table, the things your word calls us to, are too great for us. None of us can meet this bill. None of us can fulfill these requirements. None of us has the strength in and of ourselves to overcome the weakness of the flesh. No man in here, as we have talked about, can be what he must be in his own strength. Father, we praise you that your grace is stronger than our sin. Your grace is stronger than our weakness. We praise you that the Holy Spirit lives in us. Romans 8.37 has made us more than conquerors. Father, I pray for the men in this room that they will act like men, that they will act like Christ, that they will find their strength in the Lion of Judah. I pray for every believer in here, every man and woman alike, that, Father, we will be bold as a lion. We will not live under the terror of shame and death, but we will live in the renewing grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.